And now the end is near And so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway And more, much more than this I did it my Uh, hi, we're back. We're rolling. We are rolling, and uh, what a what a day to record the fall of the Soviet Union on International Workers' Day. Yeah, Huva uh, Vapua to all my friends in Finland. It's kind of a weird time to celebrate, I guess, because you know you can't can't all be out in public right now. Yeah. Hope everyone's having fun anyway. But yeah, no, I agree. It's kind of an interesting day to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess without further ado, uh, it's our season finale. Uh, we're talking about the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. When it all finally ended, 70 years of communism. The hammer fell and shattered into pieces. And by pieces, I mean other republics. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Russia did also literally fall to pieces for a while. So it did. Still kind of is. Anyway. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we will. So that's today, and then we're into season three or season four right away, almost it seems. So, yeah, we have a really special episode coming up after this. We're gonna do another another nonsense, but we uh, we have a, our our very first guest is gonna be joining us, Doctor Annie St. John Stark, a professor of history at the Thompson Rivers University, is gonna be joining us for a conversation about whatever we decide to talk about. I don't really know yet. <laughs> gonna be a good time can't wait um shall we dive in let's do it we're gonna start with the illustrious first president of the russian federation but we're his and his role in the dissolution of this whole thing boris nikolaevich yeltsin was born on february 1st 1931 in butka sverdlovsk then in the russian soviet federative socialist republic rfsr so all of the republics had a name. We've kind of discussed this a little bit, but just to clarify, all of the republics would have their name. So Russia, Estonia, Latvia, etc., followed by RSFSR, Russian Soviet, or well, SFSR, I guess, or SFSR, Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. So the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, Estonian Federative, or Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. No, it'd be, it'd, it'd be uh, Estonian Socialist, socialist. Repu- so- Soviet Socialist Republic. Soviet, sorry, Soviet Socialist. Yeah, SSR. It was SSR. The, the rest pretty much had SSR. Russia was special. Was the only, yeah, sorry. Anyway, his family were largely ethnic Russians, and they lived in the area of the Ural Mountains, had lived in that area of the Ural Mountains, oops, since at least the 18th century. Nikolai Yeltsin, Boris's father, married his mother, Klavdia Stargina, in 1928. Yeltsin was much closer with his mother than his father, and his father was abusive, often beating both his wife and children. Yeltsin's paternal grandfather, Ignati, was accused of being a kulak, which basically meant a rich farmer, in 1930, as Stalin sought to collectivize farms. 
His prosperous farm was confiscated, and as a result, his family were forced to reside in a cottage in Budka. Nikolai and Ignati's other children were allowed to work on the collective farm, but Ignati was not. In 1934, he and his wife were exiled to Nadezdinsk, sorry, where he would die a couple of years later. Shortly after Yeltsin's birth, the family was hit hard by the famine of 1932 and 1933, and often throughout his childhood, Yeltsin was hungry. In 1932, his parents moved to Kazan, and there in 1934, Nikolai was arrested and sentenced to three years in the Dmitrov labor camp, having been accused of anti-Soviet agitation. Whatever that means. <laughs> Yeltsin and his mother were evicted from their residence, but taken in by friends. And in October of 1936, Nikolai returned, and shortly after, in July, Yeltsin had a little brother, Mikhail. Around then, they moved to Berezniki in Permkarai, where Nikolai worked in a potash project, and in 1944, Yeltsin's sister, Valentina, was born. Yeltsin received his primary school education at Berezniki's Railway School, number 95. He did well in school, and he did well in school throughout his career. He's a pretty smart dude, despite not looking or sounding like one to, by the time he was really on TV in the 90s. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he did well, so anyways, he did well in school, but he was often, and was often elected class monitor by fellow students, and he got to take part in activities that were organized by Komsomol and the Vladimir Lenin All-Union Pioneer Organization. Love the names. He went to the Municipal Secondary School Number 1, also known as Pushkin High School. This time overlapped with the involvement of World War II, or involvement of so the Soviet Union in World War II, during which Yeltsin's paternal uncle was killed, ser killed serving in the Red Army. While at high school, he continued to do well academically, and he also became interested in sports, becoming the captain of the volleyball team. He liked playing pranks, and in one involving a grenade, blew off the thumb and left index fingers on his left hand. Yeah. <laughs> He's often... He often spent time going on summer walking expeditions in the adjacent taiga for weeks at a time. In September 1949, he was admitted to the Ural Polytechnic Institute of Sverdlovsk, and he took the stream of industrial and civil engineering, which included courses in math, physics, material and soil science, and draftsmanship. He was also required to study Marxist-Leninist doctrine and to choose a language. He chose German, but he wasn't very good at it. His tuition was free. <laughs> he wasn't very good at languages. He didn't speak, he didn't speak English either. <laughs> um, which, to be fair, learning English was not allowed in the Soviet Union for yeah. a long time, too. So, but anyway, uh, his tuition was free, and he was provided a small stipend to live on, which he supplemented by unloading railway trucks. He remained a high achiever academically, but he did have to temporarily drop out due to tonsillitis and rheumatic fever. Yeltsin was a very sick boy for a little while. He spent a lot of time playing sports, and he joined the volleyball team. He avoided politics while in school, and in, during the 1953 summer break, traveled across the Soviet Union, mostly by hitchhiking and catching, on freight or catching rides on freight trains. It was during his time at school that he met his future wife, Naina Yosefina Girina, or sorry, Yosef, Yosef, or Yosefovna Girina. He completed his studies in 1955, and then was initially assigned to work in the Lower Isset Construction Directorate in Sverdlovsk, initially as a trainee in various building trades. He was a fast riser. Again, a thing throughout his whole career. <laughs> in 1956, he was promoted foreman. In 57, promoted to superintendent. And in 58, he became a senior work superintendent. And in 1960, he was made head engineer of construction directorate number 13. In February 1962, he was promoted chief of the directorate. He was mostly involved in building residential housing and the expansion of which was a major priority for the government at the time. In 1963, Yeltsin was reassigned to Sverdlovsk Housing Building Combine as its head engineer, and in 1965 became the Combine's director. He joined the ranks of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, nomenklatura, which basically means document bureaucracy, 
um, people that were well known to be high high member mem members of the Soviet or the party. And uh, in 1968, he became part of this group when he was appointed head of construction with the Sredlovsk Regional Party Committee. In 1975, he became, er, he became secretary of the regional committee in charge of the region's industrial development. And in 1976, the Politburo of the CPSU promoted him to the post of first secretary of the CPSU committee of Sverlovsk Oblast. Basically, he became the head of one of the most prominent industrial regions in the USSR, and he remained in this position until 1985. So he had been a Communist Party member since March 17th of 1961 until 1990 and a member of the nomenclatura since 1968, as I mentioned. And during his time, he developed key connections with people in the Soviet power structure. In January 1981, he was awarded the Order of Lenin, the Soviet Union's highest medal for, quote, service to the Communist Party and the Soviet state and in connection with the 50th birthday of the Soviet state. That March, he was elected a full member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. On March 11th, 1985, Gorbachev was elected General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union by the Politburo following the death of Konstantin Chernenko. As we have discussed in previous episodes, Gorbachev's main focus was on fixing the economy, but he realized he would also need to change some of the social and political structures that existed in order to do so, because people are stubborn. <laughs> to implement these reforms, he immediately began to gather a younger and more energetic governing team of Communist Party members in Moscow. As you'll remember, the end of the 80s, or well, the end of the Brezhnev era, mid-80s, was marked by a lot of, uh, not a lot of energy. It's a distinct lack of energy <laughs> amongst everybody in charge, pretty much. And then everyone else as a result. <laughs> Things are pretty stagnant. So Gorbachev wanted to get a young, energetic group of people who were willing to do stuff and enact change. And on April 4th, Boris Yeltsin received a phone call from Gorbachev's leading protege, Yegor Ligachev, summoning him to Moscow to take up a position as head of the construction department of the party's central committee. Yeltsin continued his streak of rising quickly. Less than three months later, he was promoted to, the secretary, to be Secretary of Construction of the Central Committee, a position within the powerful Communist Party Central Committee Secretariat, which was basically the group that made all the decisions. In, on December 23rd, 1985, Yeltsin was appointed first Secretary of the Communist Party of Soviet Union in Moscow, or Moscow Committee, which effectively made him the mayor of Moscow. So the actual term for mayor of Moscow is first Secretary of the Communist Party Soviet Union of Moscow. Yeah, pretty much the leader of all the Soviet republics were the first secretary of the Communist Party of like Azerbaijan. Yeah, it's, a mouthful. Or... It's, a, it's a fucking mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and then it just goes from like country to city and it's like, oh my God, okay. It's a lot of words. Anyway, finally on February 18th, 1986, he was invited to become a candidate or non-voting member of the Politburo. And he would only ever remain a non-voting member of the Politburo, and this was a matter of contention later. As a member of the Politburo, he was given a country house, a dacha, which was previously occupied by Gorbachev, who now moved into a bigger and nicer dacha nearby. Uh, during his time as the head of Moscow, Yeltsin portrayed himself as a reformer and a populist. He rode a trolley bus to work and fired and reshuffled his staff several times. Moscow residents liked him because he fired corrupt Moscow party officials and generally appeared to be just, you know, interested in doing things and changing things. Gorbachev was skeptical of Yeltsin, though, as were many other members of the Soviet of the government at the time. They saw Yeltsin as engaging in too much self-promotion. It was publicly known that he rode a trolley bus, etc., etc. Um, Soviet politics wasn't really about that. Yeltsin was essentially a modern politician in a very different political setting. 
These feelings of distrust and criticism were mutual, though, because Yeltsin saw Gorbachev as being patronizing and was very critical of him from the opposite direction of many other people, actually. In early 1986, Gorbachev had, become sniping at Yeltsin, had begun sniping at Yeltsin during Politburo meetings. And at the 27th Party Congress in February, Yeltsin decided to attack. He called for more far-reaching reforms than Gorbachev was initiating and criticized the party leadership, claiming that a new cult of personality was forming. He did not criticize Gorbachev by name, but it was pretty obvious who he was referring to. At that point, Gorbachev opened the floor to responses, where attendees publicly criticized Yeltsin for several hours, which I am sure was a great time. Following that, <laughs> Gorbachev continued and claimed that Yeltsin only cared for himself and was, quote, politically illiterate, which, I mean, in Soviet politics wasn't wrong, um, but also in regular politics, like, um, anyway. Basically, Yeltsin was criticizing Gorbachev from the left and like, or in the, from the like freeing things up side rather than the, we don't want to free things up side. And it was a new look for Gorbachev. He hadn't really dealt with that. <laughs> things escalated quickly from here though. In September of 1987, after a lecture from hardliner Igor Ligachev at the Politburo for allowing two small unsanctioned demonstrations on Moscow streets, Yeltsin wrote a letter of resignation to Gorbachev who was then holidaying in the Black Sea. Yeltsin didn't really like being told what to do. Gorbachev was understandably stunned. Nobody in the history of the Soviet Union had ever voluntarily resigned from the ranks of the Politburo. It's a pretty big deal to actually get into the Politburo. You don't give it up. So Gorbachev phoned Yeltsin and asked him to reconsider. But in late October of 1987, uh, at a plenary meeting of the Central Committee of the CPSU, Yeltsin, who was still pissed at Gorbachev for not addressing many of the issues, or any of them actually, that he had laid out in his resignation letter, asked to speak. He expressed his discontent with the slow pace of reform in society, the servility shown to the general secretary, and opposition to him from Ligachev, making his position untenable, before requesting to resign from the Politburo. He added that the city committee would decide whether he should resign from the post of first secretary of the Moscow Communist Party. His act was bold, as not only was this the first time anyone had resigned, but also the first time anyone had talked to the general secretary in front of the central committee in such a manner since Trotsky in the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> Gorbachev accused Yeltsin of political immaturity and, quote, absolute irresponsibility, and no one in the Central Committee backed Yeltsin. So again, he got torn down for several hours. But the speech actually did serve Yeltsin well, because within days, news of, this, of these actions leaked, and rumors of his speech at the Central Committee spread throughout Moscow. Dissident versions, kind of fabricated events, um, you know, they took it and ran with it, bit of a game of telephone. And so dis dissident versions of the story began to circulate and kind of marked Yeltsin's beginning as a, a rebel and anti-establishment figure. He was really popular in Moscow. And so, yeah, the dissidents started seeing him as someone who might have their back and might be interested in, in freeing things up a little bit. So Gorbachev called a meeting of the Moscow City Party Committee for November 11th, 1987 to launch another crushing attack on Yeltsin and confirm his dismissal. These two really fucking hated each other at some point. It was really not a good relationship at all. No. Something that's kind of brought up as a possible reason for why Yeltsin didn't really like Gorbachev and kind of resented him was that Gorbachev was really hesitant to make Yeltsin a voting member of the Politburo. And that's why he only ever remained a candidate member. And so people kind of saw Yeltsin maybe kind of striking back at that. That's a one theory that's posited anyways. On November 9th, Yeltsin was rushed to hospital, bleeding profusely from self-inflicted cuts to his chest, apparently having tried to commit suicide. 
Gorbachev ordered the injured Yeltsin from his hospital bed to the Moscow party committee meeting on the 11th, where he was ritually denounced by the party faithful in what looked a lot like a Stalinist show trial before he was fired from his post as first secretary of the Moscow Communist Party. A little harsh. <laughs> Yeltsin said he would never forget Gorbachev for this, quote, immoral and inhuman treatment. He was demoted to first deputy commissioner of the State Committee for Construction. At the next Central Committee meeting in February 1988, he was removed as a candidate member of the Politburo. Yeltsin was pissed off and humiliated, but he began to plot his revenge. His opportunity came when Gorbachev established the Congress of, the People's, Congress of People's Deputies, which was Gorbachev's attempt at reform through constitutional change and became the highest governing body in the Soviet Union. I'll explain it a little bit better, kind of down further. Yeltsin started intensifying his criticisms of Gorbachev, highlighting the slow pace of reform in the Soviet Union as his main argument. His criticism led to a smear campaign against him where examples of Yeltsin's awkward behavior were used against him. He was described by Pravda as, a drunk, as drunk at a lecture during his visit to the United States in 1989, which appeared to be confirmed by a TV account of his speech. But, you know. Uh, in another incident, Yeltsin fell from a bridge. He claimed he was pushed, but his opponents claimed he was drunk. Not a far-fetched theory. Either of them. <laughs> <laughs> However, the dissatisfaction with, because Yeltsin did have a notorious drinking problem, so. Yeah. The smear campaign wasn't exactly wrong, but in that sense, he was a drunk, but anyway. Um, dissatisfaction with the regime amongst the people was generally so strong that the smear campaign really only actually added to Yeltsin's popularity. It really did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. <laughs> On March 26, 1989, he was elected to the Congress of People's Deputies of the Soviet Union as a, the delegate from Moscow with a decisive 92% of the vote. And on, 20, on May 29th, was elected by the Congress of People's Deputies to a seat on the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union. On July 19th of the same year, he announced the formation of the rad radical pro-reform faction in the Congress of People's Deputies, the Interregional Group of Deputies. On July 29th, he was elected one of the five co-chairmen of the Interregional Group. So the 1980s were a tumultuous period for the Soviet Union, which you may remember. Uh, <laughs> was and uh, as you may remember, the Soviet Union was made up of a lot more than just Russia. Yeah. So in December of 1986, Gorbachev dismissed the long-serving secretary of the Communist Party of Kazakhstan, Din Mukhamed Kunaev, and the appointment of Gennady Kolbin instead. Kunaev was an ethnic Kazakh, and Kolbin was unpopular as he had not lived or worked in Kazakhstan to that point. I believe he was an ethnic Russian. But that's kind of unclear. According to Gorbachev's memoir, they had discussed it at the 27th Congress of the CPSU, and Kunayev had expressed his desire to retire and proposed the appointment of someone without previous links to the Kazakh Communist Party in his place to stop the advancement of Nur Sultan Nazarbayev in the party ranks. Uh, Nazarbayev was uh, another person kind of surging ahead trying to get power and would also become the uh, first president of Kazakhstan when they became independent. Uh, Kunayev, though, in his own book, disputed Gorbachev's claim and said that Gorbachev didn't ask him about his replacement and said only that a good comrade would be sent. So, a little bit of a dispute there. But. As a result of this, demonstrations in Alma Alta, now known as Almaty, Kazakhstan, the capital, uh, started on the morning of December 17th, 1986, as two to 300 students gathered in front of the Central Committee building on Brezhnev Square to protest the decision of the Communist Party to appoint Kolbin rather than an ethnic Kazakh. The number of protesters increased to between one and 5,000 students, 
from as students from universities and institutes join the crowd on Brezhnev Square. So TASS, which is basically the Russian Associated Press, it's our central news agency, uh, reported, quote, a group of students incited by nationalistic elements last, last evening and today took to the streets of Alma Alta, expressing disapproval of the decisions of the recent plenary meeting. Hooligans, parasites, and other antisocial persons made use of this situation and resorted to unlawful actions against representatives of law and order. They set fire to, the, to a food store and to private cars and insulted townspeople. <laughs> right? I laughed at that part too. <laughs> Witnesses reported that the rioters were given vodka, narcotics, and leaflets, which ind indicated that the riots were not spontaneous. They disagreed with the characterization of the riot as related to nationalism or independence, because at that point they really didn't want to leave the Soviet Union. Instead, it was more of a protest over Gorbachev's appointing as an outsider to the head of state. As a result, the Communist Party of Kazakhstan Central Committee ordered troops from the Ministry of Internal Affairs, volunteers, cadets, policemen, and the KGB to cordon off the square and videotape the participants. The situation escalated around 5 p.m. as troops were ordered to disperse the protesters. Clashes between the protesters and security forces continued throughout the night in the square and in different parts of the city. The second day of protests turned into straight up civil unrest as clashes in the streets at universities and dormitories between troops, volunteers, militia units, and Kazakh students turned into a wide scale armed conflict. As they tend to do. You know, it happens. Uh, it's not the first not time that it's sorry. It's not the first time that this happens in this whole, or it's not the, it's not that last time that this happens in this episode too. Nope. Not the first, not the last. Uh, well, <laughs> Anyway, these clashes were not controlled until the third day and similar events took place in other cities in Kazakhstan. The total number of protesters varies depending on who's giving the estimate. Moscow reports about 200 people. The Kazakh, yeah, Kazakh SSR reports show 3,000 and, and other estimates are in the 30,000 range. Uh, leaders of the protests say over 60,000 Kazakhs protested. So, you know, between 200 and 60,000 people were involved. <laughs> <laughs> also contributing to some tumult was the Gorbachev's, well, Gorbachev's reforms, ultimately. Democratizatia, or democratization, was a slogan introduced by Gorbachev in January of 1987, which called for the infusion of democratic, well, quote, democratic elements into the Soviet Union's single party government. Uh, the air quotes are important there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a part of his set of reform programs, including Glasnost, Uskorenia, speeding up of economic development, and ultimately perestroika, which was openness, embraced them all. He increasingly found himself caught between criticism by conservatives who wanted all of this to stop and liberals who wanted to make it all go faster. He pushed on and at an unprecedented emergency central committee plenum, three stalwart old guard members left the Politburo. Andrei Gromyko, Igor Ligachev, and Mikhail Solomentsev, or Solomentsev, sorry, all retired or were relieved of their duties. The Supreme Soviet then elected Gorbachev chairman of the Presidium of the Soviet Supreme Soviet, giving him the attributes of power that previously Brezhnev had. So after Brezhnev, before Gorbachev, we talked about Chernenko and Andropov, and neither of them had really like made it to a high level of power because they both died before they had the opportunity for the most part. And so Gorbachev was deciding at this point that he couldn't make a lot of change without actually just changing the constitution and structuring things differently. So, as a result, the Secretariat, that time, until that time, solely responsible for the development and implementation of state policies, had lost all of its power. So, uh, that's fun. 
Governmental structures also changed with the formation of the Congress of People's Deputies of the Soviet Union, which constitutional amendments established as the Soviet Union's new legislative body, which I mentioned, but I'll explain it now. The Supreme Soviet then dissolved itself. The amendments called for a smaller working body of 542 members, also called the Supreme Soviet, to be elected from the 2200 member Congress of People's Deputies. To ensure a communist majority in the new parliament, Gorbachev reserved one third of the seats for the Communist Party and the other public, other public organizations. So yeah, essentially this is his attempt at having like a house and a Senate, but like, it's not really that much different. It's just his kind of attempt at like separating some of the powers out so that he can try and create more openness and also I guess kind of have some democratization because there's a little bit of election. The March 1989 election of the Congress of the People's Deputies marked the first time in Soviet histories that voters ever chose the membership of the national legislative body. The results of the election stunned the people in power. Voters across the country crossed off the communist candidates on the ballot who were running unopposed, many of whom were prominent party officials, taking advantage of their nominal privilege of withholding approval of the list of candidates. That being said, the Congress of People's Deputies that still or that emerged still contained 87% communist, communist party members as was expected. Genuine reformists won about 300 seats or so, which isn't that much in 2,200 total seats. <laughs> <laughs> the initial session of the new body took place in May and it electrified the country. For two weeks on live television, deputies from around the country railed against every scandal and shortcoming of the Soviet system that could be identified. Speakers spared no one, going after Gorbachev, the KGB, and the military. But a conservative majority maintained control of the Congress and Gorbachev was elected without opposition to the chairman of the new Supreme Soviet, as was intended. The, the Congress then elected a large majority of old-style party apparatchiks to fill the membership of its new legislative body. Yeltsin got into the Supreme Soviet, as I mentioned, but only because someone had relinquished their position. This Congress was the last moment of real control over the political life of the USSR for Gorbachev. A primary issue for Yeltsin's previously mentioned opposition, bloc interregional group, was the repeal of Article 6 of the Constitution. This article prescribed the supremacy of the Communist Party over all institutions in society. Gorbachev was caught between a rock and a hard place as he needed allies against the hardliners, but he also faced mounting opposition. He obtained the repeal of Article 6 by the February 1990 Central Committee Plenum, which was like basically his own unraveling in lots of ways. <laughs> it's kind of the start of the end, really. Later that month, before the Supreme Soviet, he proposed the election of an a new office of the president of the Soviet Union for himself to be elected by the Congress of the People's Deputies rather than the popular elections. Accordingly, in March 1990, he was elected for the third time in 18 months to a new position, which, is, which, is, which was equivalent to the Soviet head of state. It's a little freaking confusing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, former first deputy chairman of the Supreme Soviet, Anatoly Lukyanov, became chairman of the Supreme Soviet. The Supreme Soviet became similar to Western parliaments at that point, and the debates inside it were televised daily. By the time of the 28th Party Congress in July 1990, the CPSU was regarded by liberals and nationalists of the constituent republics as anachronistic and unable to lead the country. The Communist Party branches in many of the 15 Soviet republics began to split into large pro-sovereignty and pro-union factions, which was yet another blow to central party control. Uh, the CPSU had rather humi humiliatingly been separated from the government and stripped of its leading role in the Soviet society and its function in overseeing the national economy. The majority of its apparatchiks, <clears throat> however, were successful in obtaining leading positions in the newly formed democratic institutions. So 
nothing actually changed in terms of the people in charge for the most part. <laughs> for seven decades, the CPSU had been the cohesive force that kept the union together. And without the authority of the party in the Soviet center, the, national, the nationalities and ethnic groups of the constituent republics pulled harder than ever to break away from the union and to dismantle the party itself. Around this time, the Parade, parade Suverenitov, or the Parade of Sovereignties, began to take place. Basically, constituents of the republics began to declare their sovereignty in varying degrees. And these declarations stated the priority of the constituent republic's power within its territory over the central power, which in the past had led to a war of laws between the centrally controlled government and the republics, but now no one gave a fuck and they did what they wanted. The first region to declare, the, to declare independence was the Nakhivichian Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic in January 1990. However, the leader of Azerbaijan, SSR, had roots in Nakhivan Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. So, the leader of Azerbaijan had roots in Nakhivan and managed to keep them within Azerbaijan, so they separated, but not really. So, like, going from Azerbaijan, yeah. Armenian Azerbaijan is really when shit kind of hits the fan in the Soviet Union because despite them both being Soviet republics within the Soviet Union, they went to war with one another. <laughs> they didn't like each other very much. No, and they still don't. Mm -mm. So when the other Soviet republics were established, there's already contention between Armenia and Azerbaijan and both had fought a war with each other during their brief independence between 1919 and 1920. Uh, neither side was victorious because the Russian SFSR was like, hey, I got a better idea, invaded, and then annexed both countries. That's what they do. <laughs> Armenia is predominantly Christian with 92.5% of the population attending what is known as the Armenian Apostolic Church, while Azerbaijan predominantly practices Islam with 97% of the population being Muslims. There is a region within Azerbaijan known as Nagorno-Karabakh, what is now most frequently referred to as Artska, and it is a region within Azerbaijan made up predominantly of ethnic Armenians. It is known as an enclave as all of its borders are completely surrounded by Azerbaijan. It was part of Stalin's stupid divide and conquer strategy where he would divide, he would create such strange borders in order to have the republics more dependent off of Moscow. To bring further this, that uh, region that Lindsay mentioned before, Nakhchivan, is an exclave that it borders Armenia to the to the north and the and the east, and Turkey to the west. So yeah, both countries had their own weird enclave, exclave type of bullshit, because you know that's what Stalin did. Armenians began to more vocally declare dissatisfaction with the Nagorno-Karabakh situation following Stalin's death. In 1963, 2,500 Armenians living in Karabakh signed and delivered a petition calling on control of the enclave to be handed over to Armenia. Violent demonstrations also erupted in the cap oblast's capital of Stepanakert. 18 people died in the clash. Following Gorbachev's implementation of Glasnost, the regional Karabakh Soviet voted to unify with Armenia on February 20th, 1988. Furthermore, the regional party secretary, Boris Kvorkov, was dismissed on the 24th due to having Azerbaijani sympathies. When someone says like, oh, they had such and such sympathies, it's like, that's such a broad 
kind of statement. Soviet agit or anti-Soviet agitation. Yeah. <laughs> Broad statement. <laughs> The Karabakh Armenian leadership began expressing their grievances with Moscow over what they called an attempt for Azerbaijan to ajerify Karabakh. At this time, no school textbooks or television broadcasts were in Armenian and instead were printed or presented in Azeri. Tensions boiled over between February 22nd and 23rd, 1988. A rumor spread that an Azeri had been murdered and Stepan occurred. An angry mob surrounded the Azerbaijan local party headquarters and demanded information on the alleged incident be released. Despite no such incident having occurred and being told as such, the crowd was convinced they were being lied to and began marching towards Karabakh, causing damage to property along the way. Local police and militia attempted to stop the crowd in the town of Askaran, resulting in a full-blown riot between the local Armenians, the Azeris, and the authorities. In the end, two Azeris and 50 Armenians were killed, with an unknown number injured. Residents of the Caspian Sea city of Sumgate became angered by the clashes and began a pogrom targeting local Armenians on February 27th. People were beaten, raped, and killed, and many Armenian businesses and homes were destroyed and looted. Local police did nothing to stop the violence, and as a result, the following day, troops attached to the Ministry of Internal Affairs, or NVD, were dispatched to disperse the riots with military backup in the form of armor, tanks, and more troops arriving the next day. The unrest lasted until March 1st, when Soviet troops finally restored order. The Soviet official statement claimed there were only 32 killed, while Armenian sources estimated as somewhere closer to 200. By this point, the Armenian SSR and Azerbaijan SSR had entered into conflict with one another, despite their still being part of the Soviet Union. The Soviets supported the Azeris, as Armenia and Karabakh had become in favor of separation from the USSR. This was the first instance of splintering within the USSR itself. The war lasted until 1994 after the Soviet Union ended. Armenia was militarily victorious and Nagorno-Karabakh became the de facto independent state, although it is still internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan. To this day, Armenia and Azerbaijan have no diplomatic relations with one another. The conflict continues to this day via minor skirmishes and there is a massive series of trench lines on the Ar Artskazi and Azari border. I did skip a lot at the end, because honestly, we need to do a whole episode on Nagorno-Karabakh because it is something that really fascinates me. The Baltics had a different way of revolting, though. As they do. <laughs> yeah, the Baltic countries, which are Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, for those of you who don't know, had been a part of the Soviet Union since the end of World War II. With Gorbachev ushering in this new period of openness, hitherto unrecognized issues previously kept secret by the Moscow government were admitted to in public, and this caused a lot of dissatisfaction in the Baltics, who truthfully had never been satisfied under Soviet control anyways. The Baltics have always had very strong nationalism and were very like actively against Soviet control for a long time. I've spent a lot of time, actually I've spent a fair bit of time in Estonia randomly. I've been to Tallinn three times. I did a really neat walking tour one time and they talked about the history of communism in Estonia and how people were never a fan uh, of it. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting. Anyway, Estonia has, it throughout its entire history, and Latvia and Lithuania are pretty similar in this sense, have been constantly occupied by other people. 
they have been invaded and occupied by everyone and have really not been in control of their own country. So that's why a lot of underlying nationalism exists and has always existed. So it's a very strong kind of dissident population in that sense. Finland is the same. That's why they, but they managed to bolt in 1917. Anyway, <laughs> all of this combined with, so yeah, all of that combined with Chernobyl and the war in Afghanistan, grievances, which was still happening, as we discussed a couple episodes ago, grievances were aired in publicly explosive and politically decisive manners. Uh, this was particularly heightened in places like Estonia, as I mentioned, because they had informal relations with Finland. Linguistically, they basically speak the same language. And they also had access to Finnish TV, which showed them Western lifestyles. So they had a lot of access to Western culture. Actually, this, on my walking tour. Is Estonian and Finnish kind of like the, those languages that are similar enough that they can understand each other's languages? Or yep. Okay. Yep. They can, they can read it, too. It's extremely similar. It's different, but like extremely similar. Most, most Finnish people, when they go to Estonia, just speak Finnish. And it's a little bit rude of them, but they do that. I guess not most, actually. A lot will just speak English, actually. They'll be nicer. Ah. Because it's kind of rude to just speak Finnish to Estonians. Be like, understand me, bitch. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But that is a thing. Yeah, Estonian, Finnish, and Hungarian are part of the Finno-Ulgric language group, which is a unique language group. Hungarian is different, though, than Estonian and Finnish. They have similar words and sounds, but they mean different things. Whereas Estonian and Finnish are like a lot like... Um, Dutch and German where they're very very similar and like Ukrainian and Russian that kind of stuff very very similar shit ton of vowels (laughs) absolute shit ton of vowels anyway so Estonia had access to western culture and yeah like oh yeah so on my walking tour I digress there was uh we went to this hill which was actually like a spot where people would trade contraband music and like western so records and tapes and stuff that they had either managed to tape over the airwaves or smuggled into the country uh or something like that and they would exchange tapes and everything and there's a documentary on it they told me about it and i was never i can't remember what it's called now but i was never able to find it which really disappointed me because i wanted to watch it and it was about this like trade of music and stuff but uh Widespread dissatisfaction with the Soviet Union provoked mass demonstrations as repression on dissidents, nationalists, and religious communities, and ordinary consumers, ultimately, eased through the 80s. So yeah, because people were being punished less, it was easier to go out and demonstrate, and there was a lot of that. Um, in Estonia, the Soviet government's plans to excavate phosphorite in the Lenaviru County, with potentially catastrophic consequences for the environment and society, became known in February 1987. This sparked a massive environmental campaign, which was dubbed the Phosphorite War. In 1988, the five, five patriotic songs by Alo, Alo Matisin, or Matisin premiered at the Tartu Pop Festival. In June, the Old Town Festival was held in Tallinn. After the official part of the festival, the participants moved to the song festival grounds and started to sing patriotic songs together and somewhat spontaneously. This marks the beginning of the singing revolution, as it was known. Later that year, the five patriotic songs were performed again at the Rock Summer Festival in Tallinn, and in August 1989, the Baltic Way took place. This was a human chain of more than two million people, which spanned from Tallinn to Tallinn, Estonia to Vilnius, Lithuania. It originated in the Black Ribbon Day protests, which were held in Western cities in the 1980s. The Baltic Way also marked the 50th anniversary of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, which divided Eastern Europe into spheres of influences, and had led to the occupation of the Baltic states in 1940. So that was really the main point of the protest. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was extremely consequential for the Baltic states, and so they really fucking hated the Soviet Union for that one. Don't blame them. 
Yeah. It was uh, organized by pro. So yeah, the Baltic Way was organized by Baltic pro-independence groups, Ravarine of Estonia, Tautas Fronta of Latvia, and the Reform Movement of Lithuania, or just movement. I can't pronounce the Lithuanian word. I'm sorry. <laughs> Lithuanian friends, if you happen to be listening, Santa in particular, help me. <laughs> <laughs> so. The protest was designed to draw global attention by demonstrating a popular desire for independence and showcasing solidarity among the three nations. The event presented an opportunity for the Baltic activists to, pu to publicize the Soviet rule and position the, the question of Baltic independence not only as a political one, but as a moral question. The Soviet authorities responded to the event with intense rhetoric, but little, little real action. They didn't actually send tanks like they did previously when people tried this. Within months of the protest, Soviet or Estonia became the first to declare independence with with the Supreme Soviet of Estonia issuing the Estonian Sovereignty Declaration on November 16th. So all of the Baltic nations claim to be the first, <laughs> by the way. And they all kind of step, they all kind of have a claim to it that I've figured out. Yeah. So I'm gonna say that they're the every one of them is the first, because they kind of are. They all essentially declared independence around the same time. It just all happened at slightly different paces. Yeah. But it makes sense to me that Estonia was the first. So on November 6th, yeah, so the Supreme Soviet of Estonia, together with the Congress of Estonia, proclaimed the restoration of the independent state of Estonia and repudiated Soviet legislation. People acted as human shields against Soviet tank attempts. So they did send some tanks, <laughs> but they weren't actually there to shoot people. They were there to shoot down radio and TV stations, but people acted as human shields to stop that. And so as a result, there was actually no bloodshed because the Soviets just really didn't care about shooting people anymore at that point. <laughs> they really just kind of accepted that it was all over. <laughs> Independence was finally declared late in the evening of August 20th, 1991. So like I said, it doesn't surprise me that Estonia was the first to declare independence just because of these following reasons. Much of the Mahedis had seen Latvia kind of lead the way in resistance and dissatisfaction against the Soviets. But as the 80s progressed, Estonia took over. So kind of makes sense to me that Estonia would be first just because all the momentum had really been in their court through the late 80s yeah but one of the most important groups that was involved in latvia through the early 80s and they're like and they were a really important group and very active and they were called helsinki 86 and their name came from the helsinki accords and the year that they were formed which was 1986. so in 1987 on the anniversary of the 1941 deportations they organized people to place flowers at the freedom movement or freedom monument which was latvia's symbol of independence erected in 1935. So the deportations they're talking about, I believe, are deportations to the Soviet Union to prevent, or before Nazi occupation. So it was like the forced removal of people. So they weren't super pumped about that. Deportations never go well. No. And there was a lot of them in the Soviet Union. Another really important one that comes up a little later, but also was Chechnya. Chechnya got hit the hardest with deportations. <laughs> but anywho, yeah, so they were organized to place flowers at the Freedom Monument in, in uh, Riga in August, and they organized a protest against a Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. They were involved in Baltic Way as well. Historically, Latvian Independence Day was celebrated on November 18th, 1987, and that was the first time that it had ever been, or that it had been celebrated since 1940. So it was a, a really big deal. In the summer of 1988, two of the most prominent organizations of the revival period began to assemble themselves, the Latvian People's Front and the Latvian National Independence Movement. Shortly after that, the more radical Citizens Congress called for complete non-compliance with the representatives of the Soviet regime. 
Ultimately, all three had the same goal, the restoration of democracy and the independence for Latvia. On October 7th, 1988, there was a mass public demonstration calling for Latvia's independence and the establishment of a regular judicial order. On October 8th and 9th, the first Congress of the Latvian People's Front was held. The organization attracted 200,000 members and became the main representative of the return to independence. New elections were took place in the Supreme Soviet of Latvia and on March 18th, 1990, in which the supporters of independence gained a victory. On May 4th, 1990, the Supreme Soviet of the Latvian SSR adopted the Declaration of Independence, which called for the restoration of the interwar Latvian state and the 1922 constitution. And uh, yeah, that ended the singing revolution. Yeah. But basically, singing revolution became known as the singing revolution because what was popular in all of these events was these songs, these, these uh, patriotic songs that came up. It's cool. cool. Well, it kind of reminds you of Czechoslovakia. Yeah, a little bit. Pretty similar people. Yeah. So while this is going on, while this is all starting out, all hell pretty much breaks loose in Eastern Europe with the Autumn of Nations. Because uh, if you listen to the first part of this season, and if you haven't, then you really should. <laughs> a little late. <laughs> a little late to the party. A little very late for the party. Uh, the Autumn Nations have broken out in Eastern Europe at this point. Furthermore, the Soviets were feeling the effects of their disastrous campaign in Afghanistan. Both consequently diminished the Soviet capacity to properly intervene with the Warsaw Pact members, along with Gorbachev's lack of desire to do so. He really didn't have the heart to kill people. No. No, good thing, too. Mm -hmm. Gorbachev's new political thinking was a reform to foreign policy, which in part changed the way it dealt with the Warsaw Pact members. It loosened the Soviet grasp on the Warsaw Pact that allowed them to deal with their own internal affairs. It kind of feels like they're like, ah, fuck it, things are too hard. They can deal with it themselves. Like they're jumping the ship when the ship starts to. Well, it's also what the people in those republics wanted too. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of feels that way. Oh, yeah. Fend for yourselves. Yeah. This aspect of the plan was referred to as the Sinatra Doctrine, which is why Frank Sinatra's My Way was at the beginning of this episode. As a sort of joke, the name was chosen based on Frank Sinatra's song, My Way. The doctrine was announced in a speech made by Soviet Foreign, Secre Foreign Minister Edward Shevardnets on October 23, 1989. In the speech, he declared the Soviet Union would recognize the right for freedom of choice of all other states, particularly the Warsaw Pact members. The term Sinatra Doctrine was coined by Foreign Ministry spokesperson Gennady Gersimov in an interview with Good Morning America on ABC. He said, quote, we now have a Frank Sinatra Doctrine. He did that song, I did it my way. So every country decides on its own which road to take, end quote. When asked if this included the right to reject military intervention, he confirmed saying, quote, political structures must be decided by the people who live there, end quote. He went on to say this even meant if member states cho were to choose a new party besides the Communist Party. So, yeah, this was just the moment all the other states are like, holy shit. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's like the, it's the Michael Scott gif where he's like, it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> oh. It's there's there was two reactions to this. There are the people who are like, holy shit, and there are people like, holy shit. Shit. <laughs> Honestly, they were all probably a combination of both. Yeah. One followed by the other. Yeah, exactly. 
oh shit not particular not in that particular order too yeah just like not necessarily yeah yeah. Anti-Soviet sentiment began to gain momentum in Georgia in 1988. In a similar vein to, to what was happening in Eastern Europe, these protests took the form in general strikes and secret meetings by anti-Soviet political organizations. The Abkhazia region, which has been a thorn in Georgia's side for a long, long, long time. <laughs> mm. Sure have. Yeah, responded by calling to be allowed succession from Georgia and be made a separate Soviet republic. Georgians charged the Soviets for fueling Abkhazian separatism in order to undermine this Georgian nationalism. Literally nothing has changed. No. On April 4th, 1989, tens of thousands of Georgians demonstrated in front of the House of Government in Tbilisi, Georgia. The demonstrators called for the Abkhaz separatists face repercussions and for Georgia to be recognized as an independent state. The large number of demonstrators overwhelmed the local Soviet authorities. First Secretary of the Georgian Communist Party, Jumber Patiashvili, requested assistance from Moscow in order to help restore order and to enforce a curfew. Colonel General Igor Rodinov of the Transcaucasus Military District began to mobilize the troops under his command. Aware of the impending danger, Georgian Patriarch Ilya II begged the demonstrators to disperse to prevent their serious injury or death. However, the protests refused to leave. At quarter to four in the morning, Soviet APCs surrounded the vicinity of the demonstrations. Rodinov gave the order for his troops to begin dispersing the crowd. The soldiers were armed with batons and spades, which apparently was a favorite weapon of the Soviet army. A melee ensued, and a 16-year-old girl who was attempting to flee was chased out and beaten to death on the steps. This attack was captured on film and was later used as evidence against the soldiers during a parliamentary commission. It was observed soldiers would simply chase down individuals rather than make a coordinate effort to disperse the crowd. In a panic, a stampede ensued, resulting in 19 deaths. Most died of suffocation, either from compression or from over-inhalation of tear gas. A total of 21 people died and over 100 were injured in the tragedy. The official Soviet account was that the demonstrators had been the aggressors, with a foreign ministry spokesperson blaming it on, quote, diehard extremists and political adventurists who are abusing democratization to the detriment of our new policy of openness and our of our very own society, end quote. Well, the truth is the actions of the soldier proved that that's not what they were doing at all. There's no openness. No, not at all. Video evidence showed soldiers deliberately preventing emergency workers from entering the area, and this outraged a lot of people, even in the Soviet, the, the Soviet Congress. A parliamentary commission was launched by Deputy Anatoly Sobchak, which included a full investigation and inquiry into the incident. In the end, it concluded a majority of the deaths had been a result of trampling, but also noted the use of CS and CN gas had contributed as well. Furthermore, it acknowledged the military's role creating the situation and for its use of violence. It condemned the military's actions on April, of April 9th, and with the official commission's report, the Congress of People's Deputies made it more difficult for the military to obtain approval to act against demonstrations and civil unrest within the Soviet Union. This boosted Anatoly Sobchak's popularity, 
and he was later elected mayor of St. Petersburg from 1991 until 1996. So that just proves that not like at this point, not everyone in the Soviet Union are awful people like yeah. Rodinov. As part of the effort to improve American-Soviet relations, Gorbachev met with new American president, George Bush Sr., W's father. H.W. Ah, uh, thousand points of light. I can't do his voice, but I tried. Um, if you guys know SNL, the uh, Dana Harvey Oh, so good. The best part about that is that like he loved the impersonation of him so much that he like met him. Yeah. Invited him to the White House. And yet he hated the, him and him and uh him and his wife hated the Simpsons. What the fuck? I know. It's doesn't make any sense. It's funny. The summit began in Malta on December 2nd and ended the following day. The purpose was to simply provide the US and the USSR to discuss the situations in Eastern Europe. Nothing was going to be signed or negotiated or anything. During the meeting, Bush gifted those present with a piece of the Berlin Wall as a token of goodwill. There were like, I think they said 32 heads of state or something like that were present at this meeting, including like Margaret Thatcher yeah, and whatnot. I mean, Margaret Thatcher's not head of state, but you know what I mean. While not a conference where anything was signed or anything was negotiated, the end resulted in a substantial thawing of relations between both states. Gorbachev is, was even quoted as saying at the meeting, quote, the world is leaving one epoch and entering another. We are at the beginning of a long road to a lasting peaceful era. The threat of force, mistrust, psychological and ideological struggle should all be things of the past. I assure the President of the United States that I will never start a hot war against the USA. In response, Bush Sr. said, quote, we can realize a lasting peace and transform the East-West relationship to one of enduring cooperation. That is the future that Chairman Gorbachev and I began right here in Malta, end quote. Some have gone so far to credit the Malta summit as being the true end of the Cold War. Personally, I'm not convinced on that but no. it was the, a very major step forward. I would even argue that the Cold War is still going on. Never, never Same. really ended, but... Changed. Yeah. Again, the names changed. Basically. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to go back down a dark path because of an, a certain event known as Black January. If it has the word black in the name... Like, if an event has the no word black in the name, except Black History Month, uh, means bad things. Yeah. I think that's actually probably the... Black History Month is probably the only exception. <laughs> yeah. If anyone knows any others, let us know in the comments. Later that December, Azeris living along the border with Iran began dismantling the border fences in order to bring themselves closer to the Iranian Azeri population. Unable to the control the unrest, authorities in Jalalabad surrendered to the rioters, and the city de facto fell under the administration of the Popular Front of Azerbaijan, an Azeri nationalist and liberal organization. All through 1989, the Popular Front had organized demonstrations in Lenin Square, Baku, which is Azerbaijan's capital, advocating for Azerbaijan's independence and opposition to Nagorno-Karabakh's independence. Following several instances of violence against ethnic Armenians living in Azerbaijan, particularly Baku, tensions between the Soviets and the Azeris intensified. 
Following a series of ethnic violence on January 13, 1990, the Soviets declared a state of emergency in Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia, and the Azeri city of Ganja in order to protect the ethnic Armenians. On January 18th, the Popular Front and supporters began constructing barricades at the access route of Baku. The next day, Soviet troops are mobilized to command posts surrounding the city, commanded by Soviet Minister of Defense Dmitry Yazov and Interior Minister Vadim Bakatin. Remember Yazov's name, he comes back. The Presidium of the Supreme Soviet declared a state of emergency based on a decree by Gorbachev on January 19th. That night, Soviet special forces demolished the central TV station and cut the phone lines and radio lines into Baku. This was followed by an assault of 26,000 Soviet troops into the city. It was reported the troops came under fire from Azeri nationalists, but independent Russian studies have been unable to find any credible evidence or sources suggesting any armed attack by nationalists happened against Russian troops. The operation lasted well into the 20th, with troops attacking protesters with tear gas and even live rounds. The entire operation lasted three days, resulting in upwards of 170 Azeris killed and around 30 Soviet soldiers killed. Public opinion fell highly in favor of Azerbaijan, as the local, Soviet, and international media were able to cover the events without censorship. Much of the broadcasting was done by Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. The Supreme Soviet of the Azerbaijani SSR had held a special session on January 22nd after a request from the public. They officially condemned the actions by the Soviet army. Human Rights Watch conducted their own investigation and concluded the actions taken by the Soviets were meant to be used as a scare tactic towards opposition in the other Soviet republics. In the end, the events only solidified the Soviet Union's loss of grip on its own internal republics. Now we get to move on to a happy event in an in a situ- event I like to call a McDonald's Grows in Moscow. Part of perestroika included the opening of the markets to forward products. Thus, the Soviets were exposed to things like Coke, Pepsi, etc. <laughs> Probably Nike. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Um, just yeah. a real quick thing to note. One thing I, this weird fact I know is that when they brought Coke machines to the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. it wasn't like they worked here where you punched in a code or you pressed a button with the picture on it and a can of Coke or whatever popped out. It had a single glass in the machine that would fill up with a beverage. You sat there and drank it and then put the glass back and it would clean the glass. Yeah, they have. So that's like a cultural thing because they have. um, So a popular beverage in Russia is called kvass. And it's like a basically like a non-alcoholic beer. Like it's a mildly fermented. It's very bitter. Not really. From what I remember. Mm, the cause I had wasn't. Oh. Um, I didn't like it. I, I guess I should put it that way. I didn't like it. But go on. I remember it being kind of sweet, actually. It wasn't mm. bad. It's malty, though. Like, it's barley I think that's so what it's, I meant, yeah. It's, it's malty. It's, it's very not, malty. It's not, it's not bitter, because malt is not bitter. Okay, it's then I, that's what I meant. Malty. It's definitely malty. Yes, beer education. Bitterness comes from hops, not malt. Anyways. <laughs> Um, anyway, so, but in Russia, you can basically just go to, like, kiosks and buy, like, a glass of kvass. And so, yeah, that's a thing. That's why. You have to put the glass back? I didn't go to a kiosk, but I oh. think so. I don't okay. remember. I don't know. I just bought, like, I got, I got, like, a bottle of it at, like, a grocery store or something. Ah, 
A significant event in this period was on January 31st, 1990, the day the first McDonald's opened in the Soviet Union, located in Pushkinskaya Square, Moscow. At the time of its construction, it was the world's largest McDonald's restaurant with over 900 seats available. The idea to open a McDonald's in Moscow dated back to the 1976 Summer Olympic Games in Montreal. Go Canada. Uh, when the when then McDonald's CEO Blame Joe, Canada. <laughs> when then McDonald's CEO George Cohen met with officials from the Soviet Union during the games. And he literally thought to himself, I'd like to open a McDonald's in so in the Soviet Union, but they couldn't. 35,000 people applied to work at the chain, of which 600 people were selected. Those chosen were determined to be the best of the best of the youth population. These were persons from distinguished universities with exceptional skills in public serve or in customer service. Speaking a second language is also a major plus. This is how Russia Beyond, the source I got this from, Quote, this new workforce was a sharp contrast to the typical Soviet service sector known for being dismissive, unsmiling, and cold. Can confirm. <laughs> Can confirm, kind of. It's the same, still well. the same. <laughs> yeah, no joke. Apparently Russian people were so shocked at being treated so friendly by their servers and servers smiling, the managers had to ask the staff to smile less. Mm -hmm. I am not making this up. And I can assure you, they still don't smile that much. <laughs> it was predicted on opening day would serve up to 1,000 people. They were slightly off. The price of a Big Mac at the time was 3.75 rubles. And to give you a perspective, average monthly sa Soviet salary was 150 rubles a month. Yes. So it's quite a bit of the salary. Prior to opening, 5,000 people lined up outside. Barriers had to be erected in order to maintain an organized line zigzagging through the streets. Police were also stationed around to keep things orderly. And for the most part, they behaved. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like Black Friday or what is it, Black Friday shopping. See? Yeah. And then another day with Black in the name, that's not good. Not a good time. Yeah. It's supposed to be good, but it's not good. No. 30,000 people were served on the first day alone. People waited outside for many hours despite how freaking cold it was out there. The hype continued long into the summer with long lines still being a common occurrence as people from across the Soviet Union traveled to experience the restaurant. So there are people coming from like the far eastern end. Of, like there are people coming from Vladivostok to go to this McDonald's. Like, and um yeah that's six days on a train yeah a lot of money like your life savings almost yeah it was a big I mean, thing for the, like, for the average for the average person like let's be real it wasn't average people traveling but yeah <laughs> oh for, it was average people traveling though as well like it's oh, yeah. just insane Maybe. to learn like because i was like reading through this like you think oh this was just for something but no like every every single oh, yeah. group of society in the soviet union were traveling hundreds of th or thousands of miles to oh, go yeah. to this place. I know, I'm just saying like the people who are traveling from like Vladivostok specifically are going to have a little more money in the bank mm. because that's a long yeah. trip. Good very point. expensive trip. It still is a very expensive trip. Like most average Russians still can't really afford that. Yeah, it's... Like it's not actually that cheap still. No. Even on the trend. 
So. Down the Trans-Siberian? Yeah, it's not that yeah. cheap. Photographer Mitya Kushlevich said of his experience, quote, we stood under the melting sun for around eight hours. That wasn't so much of a problem as we were used to standing in lines for days just to get our monthly ration of sugar and tea. Once inside, we were blown away by the number of young cashiers behind the huge counter, smiling, moving like bees, serving one meal after another. Nothing like our fat old ladies in white gowns sitting in front of empty shelves, pyramids of dusty canned food as window dressing. <laughs> uh, so, okay, first of all, there's a couple things to understand why this is such a big fucking deal. The Soviet Union didn't have eating out for ordinary citizens. The country had no fast food chains and there, it was not cheap to go to a restaurant. No, most people basically ate in cafeterias like at Goom, the big uh, market in Red Square. There is like a big lunch cafeteria and like that's a place that people would eat. So like that was like the cheapest way to eat and it was designed for workers and it's not a nice place to go. Like you're in a, it's a cafeteria. That's it literally in every sense of the word. Like, yeah, it's great. It's shitty. The food's not very good. Like yeah. you're either eating cafeteria, like food in a cafeteria, or you're in your tiny two room apartment with your fat, with your f- f- um, wife and f- three children eating whatever and they, rations and you got. Probably another family that you cooked because yeah. you're in a two bedroom apartment. So there's two families that can fit there. Yeah. <laughs> And then you share a kitchen with four others. Yeah. So that's the first. So like dining out at like restaurants was for the elite. I know it sounds weird saying that Soviet Union did have an elite, but that they did have an elite. They did. It was an epically corrupt system. The second and probably the most prominent reason why this was such a big hype is it was finally a way for Soviet citizens to see how they dined in the West. This was for the longest time. This was the closest they could get. So they're like, well, we finally get to see what they're eating, like what their what their food is like. Yeah, what their food is like, what they're eating, how they eat, all that stuff. I already have it scheduled, but it's gonna come out like a few like on the Friday after this comes out. But it's uh, that photographer took like like hundreds or thousands of photos of his experience there, and I posted his the article he wrote for online media source. Yeah. And he posted some of his pictures. But it's so funny to see like this American looking staff and like establishment. But all the like the men are wearing like uh bearskin caps. Yeah. Like they look very Russian, I'll just put it put it that <laughs> way. <laughs> the long lines lasted as long as nineteen ninety two until the hype died down with the planet planned opening of more locations in Russia and as we know, more more locations open. In fact, at that time, spoiler alert, at that time, the president, Boris Yeltsin, attended the opening of the second McDonald's opened in Russia. There's a great picture of him with, um, with a burger in one hand and him, sm- him smiling and waving a, waving a McDonald's flag. It's amazing. <laughs> it's one of my favorite photos. Yeah, it's great. I was going to talk about the Helsinki summit, but it just wasn't, there wasn't much. We already talked about it pretty heavily in uh, the Berlin Wall episode, as it turns out, because it was literally a summit just to discuss the reunification of Germany. Yeah. And I got so excited about McDonald's in Moscow. Yeah, so, I mean, I have, so I actually went to McDonald's in Russia, and it was an odd experience. (laughs) So when I went to Russia, I went on a trip that started in St. Petersburg. We went to Moscow. 
It was about two weeks in total. And we actually drove between St. Petersburg and Moscow on a big bus. Like it was a big group. There was probably about 40 of us. So we were on like a tour bus type thing. And first of all, the infrastructure in Russia is horrible. So like the roads are absolute trash. Like I'm pretty sure this highway was actually just a potato field. (laughs) Yeah. Like it was that bad. I almost got a concussion sleeping. Like I, I was sleeping against the window and we hit a pothole so hard because we were at highway speed that I smashed my head against the window and I swore I had a concussion and I was asleep. Yeah. When all this happened, I was very rudely awakened. But anyway, so we drove to Moscow. We spent about like 72 hours in Moscow. It wasn't really that long. I was actually kind of disappointed. I wish we'd had more time there. And then we drove back to St. Petersburg. So on the way down to Moscow, we stopped in Novgorod which is a historic city in Russia. And we did tours there and then we kept driving to Moscow. Got to Moscow at like 2 a.m. or some shit. And then um, when we drove back to St. Petersburg, we did it all in one shot, basically. We didn't stop anywhere, essentially. So we stopped for food here and there, but like in gas, obviously. But we didn't stop in another city for a couple of hours or anything. Um, And so on the way out of Moscow, we stopped at a McDonald's in this like village, basically. So it was kind of a surreal experience because when you're in the cities and I mean, it's like this all over Eastern Europe and really in most countries in the world, when you're in the big cities, it's not really representative of what the actual place looks like. It's not, it's not real. It's not real society for the most part. It's a lot of people don't live like that. So we leave Moscow and we're driving and you start to see these like really Like when you think of the Russian countryside, it's exactly what you think of. It's old wooden buildings, like dilapidated buildings and like clear, very obvious poverty. And just, you know, it's very rural and not very well developed and et cetera. So then we're going and we go to this McDonald's and it's in the middle of this, like, I think it was a slightly built up kind of town. Like it was more of a roadside town, I guess, but like at least least where the McDonald's was, it was kind of more like there's some roadside infrastructure there. There was like a gas station and stuff, I think. But it was just so weird because it was this like really like rural Russian village with a McDonald's. (laughs) Not that far out of Moscow, to be fair, but still. And then going there, it was like, I can read some Cyrillic or I can read Cyrillic, but I don't really know all the words. Like I don't, I didn't learn all the Russian words. I can at least read the alphabet though, but it was kind of hard because not all the words are obviously like the same. So I was kind of just like, you just basically pointed at a menu <laughs> or like they had like they had like laminated menus on the counter. So we had a Russian guide who kind of like organized it all because there was a big group of us. So he'd planned it all. So we didn't just like ambush this McDonald's in the middle of nowhere. And so um, we just basically pointed at menus and like ordered and kind of hoped for the best. And it tasted exactly like McDonald's. That's good. Yeah, that's good. I uh, binged hard. It was great. And then got a concussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, for any of you who are hoping to go to the first McDonald's, unfortunate in the Soviet Union, unfortunately, it is closed. It closed in 2014, and apparently, when it closed, it had about a same kind of return of hype of people wanting to go back and visit, especially people who had visited it when it first opened. It's sad that it's closed. Yeah, that is sad. I would have liked to have gone there, but. You know, mm, for sure. Yeah, rest of 1991 and Soviet Union is kind of. Yeah, so we kind of pick back up a little bit with in the Baltics because so independence in Estonia was declared in August, like I mentioned, after an agreement between political parties was reached eventually. 
The next morning, Soviet troops, according to Estonian TV, attempted to storm the Tallinn TV tower, but they failed. The communist hardliners coup basically just it went nowhere because at the time there were also a lot of pro-democracy demonstrations happening in Moscow. So people in Moscow just didn't have the bandwidth to deal with anyone else's bullshit. So on August 22nd, 1991, Iceland became the first nation to recognize the newly restored independence of Estonia. And there's actually a plaque at Icelandic embassy in Tallinn. Iceland Over is awesome. Uh, it is pretty dope. Extremely expensive to travel there. Oh my God. Oh, oh it was so expensive. I loved it, but it cost me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, over in Latvia, in January of 1991, pro-communist political forces attempted to restore Soviet power. Forcible attempts were made to overthrow the new assembly, but Latvian demonstrations managed to stop the Soviet troops from reoccupying strategic positions, and in, these events are ultimately known as the Days of Barricades. So there was a bit more unrest in Latvia. In August of 1991, an unsuccessful coup d'etat by Soviet functionaries failed, which gave Latvia an opportunity, and they swiftly moved towards independence. After the coup's failure, the Supreme Soviet of the Latvian, Re Latvian Republic announced of, on the 21st of August 1991 that the transition period to full independence declared in May of the prior year come to an end, therefore making Latvia a fully independent nation whose judicial foundation stemmed back to the statehood that existed before the occupation on June 17, 1940. Significantly, after three and a half decades, the Warsaw Pact, the military alliance between the Soviet Union and its Eastern Mil European satellites, effectively dissolved on March 31st, 1991, as Soviet military commanders announced that they were relinquishing control of Warsaw Pact forces. This was another crack in the foundation of the Soviet Union and a sign that they were losing control over their former allies. It also was a sign that the Cold War was ending. The Warsaw Pact was formed in 1955 as a response to the formation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, in 1949 by the United States, Canada, Iceland, and several other European nations to thwart the efforts of the Soviet expansionism in Western Europe. When a newly rearmed West Germany was admitted into NATO, the USSR responded by forming the Warsaw Pact with its original members, including Soviet Union, East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, and Albania, though Albania withdrew in 1968. In 1990, East Germany left the pact to prepare to reunify with West Germany, and Polish and Czech political leaders also voiced their des desire to withdraw. Dealing with this and the faltering economy and unstable political situation at home, Kremlin faced the inevitable, and by the year's end, the Soviet Union was ultimately dissolved itself. But they dissolved the Warsaw Pact at the end of the 90s, uh, or at the beginning of the 90s, sorry. Because at that point, it was just, they had no control. It was very obvious that things were coming to an end, and things were definitely unraveling in Moscow at this point. Like everywhere else, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with people, and large demonstrations had started, uh, which Jonah's going to talk about. But... Things were tumultuous and very clearly not going well for the communists. And I heard a quote one time that was something like, it was, it was a, day, or a good day for a good communist to die because, or when Gorbachev got elected, it was a, day, or a good day for a good communist to die because things were basically over for them as soon as Gorbachev was brought to power. And that proved to be kind of right. <laughs> um, yeah, things are, things are pretty tumultuous in Moscow at this point. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Plans for a coup date back to December 1990 when KGB chairman Vladimir Kuchkov requested two of his officers begin preparations for a potential state of emergency. Those who were brought in on the plan were Defense Minister Dmitry Yazov, Internal Affairs Minister Boris Pugo, Premier Valentin Pavlov, Vice President Gennady Yanayev, 
Defense Counsel Deputy Chief Oleg Baklanov, Gorbachev's Secretariat Head Valery Bolden, and CPSU Central Committee Secretary Oleg Shenin. I'm apologize for all those names. <laughs> You're not being quizzed at the end of this. These eight men formed what is known as the State Committee for the State of Emergency, also known as simply the Group of Eight. The overall plan was to have Gorbachev declare a state of emergency based on the ongoing unrest across the Union, then use the military to remove Yeltsin as president of the Russian SFSR. On July 23, 1991, the newspaper Sovietskaya the official media of the Supreme Soviet and Council of Ministers of the Russian SFSR, published a call by party officials for actions to be taken against the unrest in order to restore order to the Soviet Union. The publication um, obviously worried a lot of people. And a week later, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and Kazakh President Nur Sultan Nazarbayev met to discuss the possibility of replacing the members of the committee with reformists. However, Khrushchev had placed Gorbachev under surveillance and had become aware of the meeting and its contents. On August 4th, Gorbachev went to his summer home on Crimea, planning to return to sign the new Union Treaty on August 20th. It was chosen by the committee this would be the time to act. The group of eight traveled to Crimea on August 19th and attempted to convince Gorbachev to enact the state of emergency so they could remove Yeltsin. To their surprise, Gorbachev flew into a fury and outright refused. Without this, his support, the committee had no choice but to basically keep him confined to a summer home under house arrest. Despite not receiving approval from Gorbachev, the group of eight declared a state of emergency, then marched troops and tanks into Moscow. They claimed to have taken control themselves as Gorbachev was ill and unable to fulfill his duties at the time. However, the quick, quickly the coup fell into problems. First, the Soviet citizens were vastly unsupportive of the coup and rallied against it rather than with it. Second, few leaders of the other republics supported the coup, with others calling it unconstitutional. However, the majority of republic leaders made no statement and simply watched as the situation unfolded. Third, the foreign media allowed within the Soviet Union uncensored. Yeltsin took this opportunity to speak with CNN reporters. Live on the air with both the Union and the world watching, Yeltsin denounced the coup, declaring it a means for power to be taken away from the people. Major Evdokimov, the chief of staff for the tank battalion guarding the House of Government, which is confusingly known as White House, declared his support for Yeltsin's government. Yeltsin ventured outside, climbed onto a tank, and asked for those who supported democracy and reform to his aid. He called for a general strike and demanded Gorbachev be allowed to speak publicly. This declaration was distributed throughout Moscow on flyers. Furthermore, while some of the military was on board with the coup, the army was divided in their loyalty and the Air Force was entirely opposed to the coup. Much of the other leadership was also opposed, as it did not have su the support of Gorbachev. On August 20th at noon, a curfew was declared in Moscow from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m., which was seen as a sign of an impending attack on White House. 
the division at White House began preparing for an assault despite most stationed there being unarmed. They constructed makeshift barricades and the tanks were moved on the outside of the White House gates. The group of eight finally agreed to attack the White House at two that afternoon. However, one of the conspirators, Alexander Lebed, refused to lead those in his command to attack and instead informed the defenders of the imminent danger. At 11.03 p.m., taking advantage of the situation, the Estonian Supreme Council declared independence of the, Soviet, of the Republic of Estonia. Basically, all of this was having the exact opposite result of what they were hoping for. On August 21st, civilians blockaded one of the tunnels leading to White House, preventing the Taman guards from advancing. Soldiers opened fire and three men were killed. One, a 22-year-old Afghan war veteran, was shot and then crushed under an infantry fighting vehicle. This incident sent shockwaves through both sides of the conflict and halted further action for the time. As a result of this incident, Yazov ordered his troops to leave Moscow. Running out of ideas, the committee, some of the committee members returned to the Crimea in an attempt to appeal to Gorbachev. However, he outright refused to meet with them and instead contacted Moscow to declare the committee members dismissed from their offices and their declarations void. Meanwhile, the Supreme Council of Latvia declared sovereignty after ratifying its restoration of independence that was passed on May 4th. <laughs> By that evening, the coup had fallen apart and troops began to leave Moscow. Gorbachev and the committee members returned to Moscow on August 22nd, where Khrushchev, Yazov, and Tizolkov were immediately arrested. Pugo committed suicide the following day before he had a chance to be arrested, and all the remaining coup leaders were placed into custody within two days following the coup's end. Gorbachev was actually restored to power. He resigned as general secretary, but he was restored to some, he was restored to power by Yeltsin when he was brought back from the Crimea. But despite being returned to his position, Gorbachev's political reputation was destroyed. So while he hadn't actually resigned, he basically didn't have much of a, he had no weight, he carried no weight. Neither the Union or Russian power structure had listened to his commands as support had swung to Yeltsin, who of course had took advantage of that situation. He began taking what, remi or what remained of the Soviet Union government ministry by ministry, including the Kremlin itself. On November 6th, 1991, he issued a decree all Communist Party activities on Russian soil were banned. A month later, Ukraine voted for independence from the Soviet Union, and a week later, Yeltsin met with the leaders of Ukraine and Belarus. These meetings were known as the Belavezha Accords, and during, the, or during which the three presidents announced the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the formation of a voluntary Commonwealth of States in its place. According to Gorbachev, Yeltsin had kept the plans of the, uh, the meeting in strict secrecy, and the main goal of the dissolution of the Soviet Union was to get rid of Gorbachev, had begun to recover his reputation. Gorbachev also accused Yeltsin of violating the people's uh, will expressed in the referendum in which the majority voted to keep the Soviet Union united. Nevertheless, on December 12, 1991, the Supreme Soviet of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic ratified the Belavezha Accords and announced the 1922 Union Treaty. It also ordered the Russian deputies in the Council of the Union to cease their work, leaving that body without a quorum. So too long didn't read, the largest republic in the Soviet Union had seceded. On December 17th, Gorbachev accepted the fait accompli and agreed to dissolve the Soviet Union. On Christmas Eve, by mutual agreement of the other CIS states, which by, the time, or by this time included all of the remaining republics except Georgia, the Russian Federation took the Soviet Union seat in the, in the United Nations. 
On Christmas Day, 1991, Gorbachev resigned, resigned and the Soviet Union officially ceased to exist after seven decades. Economic relations between the former republics became severely compromised and millions of ethnic Russians found themselves in newly formed foreign countries. Initially, Yeltsin promoted retaining the national borders according to pre-existing Soviet state borders, but that left ethnic Russians as a majority in parts of northern Kazakhstan, eastern Ukraine, and areas of Estonia and Latvia, which was problematic. Um, days after the dissolution, Yeltsin resolved to embark on a program of radical economic reform. Unlike Gorbachev's reforms, which sought to expand democracy in a socialist system, the new regime aimed to completely dismantle socialism and fully implement capitalism, turning the largest command economy into a free market one. During the early discussions, they debated issues of speed and sequencing, with an apparent division between those, advi those advisors who favored a, a rapid approach and those who favored something more gradual. On January 2nd, 1992, acting as his own prime minister, Yeltsin ordered the liberalization of foreign trade, prices, and currency. At the same time, he followed a policy of macroeconomic stabilization, which was a harsh austerity regime designed to control inflation. Interest rates were raised to be extremely high to tighten money and restrict credit. To bring state revenues into balance, he raised new taxes heavily, cut sharply on government subsidies to industry and construction, and made deep cuts to state welfare spending. Things didn't go well. In early 1992, prices skyrocketed throughout Russia and a deep credit crunch shut down many industries and brought about a protracted depression. The reforms obliterated the standard of living of much of the population, especially groups dependent on Soviet-era subsidies and welfare programs. Russia's GDP fell by 50% in the 90s and vast sectors of the economy were wiped out. Incomes fell and inequality and unemployment grew dramatically. Hyperinflation was caused by the Central Bank of Russia's loose monetary policy, wiping out many people's personal savings and tens of millions of Russians were plunged into poverty. Some economists argue that in the 1990s, Russia suffered an, econ an economic downturn more severe than the Great Depression of the 1930s. Russian commentators and even some Western economists largely blame Yeltsin's program for the country's disastrous economic performance in the 90s. And it's fairly well-founded. Many politicians, including his own vice president, Alexander Rutskoy, denounced the program as economic genocide. By 1993, conflict over the economic reforms escalated between Yeltsin on one, one side and opposition to the economic reforms in Russia's parliament on the other. Throughout 1992, Yeltsin wrestled with the Supreme Soviet of Russia and the Congress of People's Deputies for control over government, government policy, and government banking and property. Throughout the course of the year, the speaker of the Russian Supreme Soviet, Ruslan Kazbulatov, came out against the reforms despite claiming to support Yeltsin's overall goals. The seventh Congress of the People's Deputies succeeded in turning down the Yeltsin-backed candidacy of Igor Gaidar for the position of Russian Prime Minister. Finally, an agreement was brokered by Valery Zorkin, Chairman of the Constitutional Court, which included provisions such as a national referendum on the new constitution, Parliament, and Yeltsin would choose a new head of government to be confirmed by the Supreme Soviet, and the Parliament was to cease making constitutional amendments that change the balance of power between the legislative and executive branches. Eventually, on December 14th, Victor Chern Chernomorden yeah, was confirmed in office, and he was seen as a compromise candidate by most of the people involved, which is probably why he was elected. Things escalated again quickly, though. Parliament changed their prior decision to hold a referendum. Yeltsin, in turn, announced on TV on March 20th, 1993, that he was going to assume certain special powers, quote-unquote, in order to implement his program of reforms. In response, the hastily called Ninth Congress of the People's Deputies, attempted to impeach Yeltsin on, on March 26, 1993, and while they gathered more than 600 votes to sack him, they fell 72 short of the needed two-thirds majority. So Boris Yeltsin almost got impeached. During the summer of that year, a situation of dual power developed, which is never good. Since July, two separate administrations 
of the Chelyabinsk Oblast functioned side by side after Yeltsin refused to accept the newly elected pro-parliament head of the region. So basically, the Supreme Soviet and Yeltsin kind of didn't work together very much right at this point. So the Supreme Soviet basically pursued its own foreign policies, passing a declaration on the status of Sevastopol, which is in the Crimea. And a commentator reflected on the situation, saying that, quote, the president issues decrees as if there were no Supreme Soviet, and the Supreme Soviet suspends decrees as if there were no president. In September, Yeltsin announced on live television, again in the breach of, in breach of the Constitution, that he was disbanding the Supreme Soviet and the Congress of People's Deputies by decree. He declared his intent to rule by decree until the election of the new parliament and a referendum on a new constitution, which triggered a constitutional crisis, which is never great in the first two years of, you know, not being the Soviet Union. The night after his address, the Supreme Soviet declared Yeltsin was no longer the president because he breached the constitution and his vice president was sworn in as acting president. Between the 21st and 24th of that month, Yeltsin was confronted by popular unrest. People were pissed at the terrible living conditions that existed. Corruption was rampant. Violent crime was skyrocketing, like organized crime. The Russian mafia took off hard in this period because everything was for sale in Russia and they sold it all, including tanks. They actually almost tried to sell a nuclear submarine. They almost succeeded. <laughs> actually, there's a documentary on Netflix. Oh, God. Yeah. Anywho, medical services were collapsing, food and fuel were increasingly scarce, and the life expectancy of the population was falling and still remains very low. The average life expectancy of a male is 53 years old. Yeltsin was increasingly getting blamed, and which, I mean, to be fair, a lot of this kind of was his fault. Yeltsin was increasingly getting blamed, and by early October, he secured the support of Russia's army and Ministry of Interior Forces and called up the tanks to shell the Russian parliament. The black marks left by the tanks became so famous that it became customary for newlyweds to take photos there. Because why not? <laughs> as the Supreme Soviet was dissolved, elections to the newly established parliament, which would now be known as the State Duma, which is a Tsarist-era title, in December of 1993. Candidates associated with Yeltsin's economic policies were overwhelmed by a huge anti-Yeltsin vote, the bulk of which were divided between the Communist Party and the ultranationalists. The referendum on the new constitution was held at the same time, and it approved the new constitution, which significantly expanded the powers of the president, giving Yeltsin the right to appoint the members of the government, to dismiss the prime minister, and in some cases, dissolve the Duma. Part of his economic policy had been a uh, policy of privatization, um, as a way of spreading ownership. <clears throat> and so privatization was viewed by the West as a key to the transition from communism to a free market. And so Yeltsin had been trying to promote privatization as a way of spreading ownership of shares in former state enterprises as widely as possible because he wanted to create political support for his reforms. So he launched a program in late 1992 where free vouchers with a face value of, or with a nominal value of about 10,000 rubles were given to all Russian citizens in which they could use to purchase share in shares in select state companies. So each Russian citizen was initially given a voucher of equal face value. Within months, the vast majority of all of these were collected in the hands of a small group of people who would be called oligarchs because they were willing to pay cash for them. So later on in 1995, as Yeltsin struggled to finance Russia's growing foreign debt and gain support for his reelection amongst the business elite, Yeltsin offered stock shares in some of Russia's most valuable state enterprises in exchange for bank loans. The program was promoted as a way of simultaneously speeding up privatization and ensuring the government a cash infusion. However, the deals were effectively giveaways of valuable state assets to a small group of tycoons in finance industry and energy, telecommunications, and the media, who became known as oligarchs, like I mentioned. This was due to the fact that many ordinary people sold their vouchers for cash, and those vouchers were bought by these people. 
Boris Berezovsky, Mikhail Khodorovsky, and Roma, Roman Abramovich are three of the most famous oligarchs. Roman Abramovich owns Chelsea Football Club. Mikhail Khodorovsky famously feuded with Putin and got sent to jail for a while. He owns one of the largest oil companies in Russia. Yeah, so oligarchy actually remains a big problem in Russia. Uh, it has Moscow has the highest concentration of billionaires in the world, but it's also one of the poorest. Like the actual the disparity in Russia is very very high. Uh, yeah, and so oligarchy is definitely still a problem. One other thing to finish off Yeltsin's first stint as president, he invaded Chechnya. <laughs> From 1991 to 1994, tens of thousands of people of non-Chechen ethnicity were leaving the Republic amidst reports of violence and discrimination against the non-Chechen population, who mostly were Russian. There, there definitely was discrimination and violence against Russians, and the reason for this is because in the 50s, Stalin had a pr program of mass deportations from Chechnya where ethnic Chechens were deported to Kazakhstan. That didn't go well. And so basically what happened was, or Chechens are predominantly Muslim, and so they were deported to Kazakhstan and ethnic Russians filled their positions and their homes and their everything. And so then when Chechens returned to their home and found Russians occupying all of their stuff, they weren't super happy about it. And so they were trying to get into or become an independent country as well. Chechen industry had begun, to, had begun to fail as a result of many of the Russian engineers and workers leaving or being expelled. And there was also decades of the Soviets crippling the non-Russian population because they forced Russian-only schooling. So Chechen, Ignush, and other ethnic groups in the area really struggled with to actually get education because they didn't really speak Russian. And there was also heavy discrimination in the public sector, so a lot of them were never able to achieve high jobs or high-ranking jobs, and so there was a massive brain drain, essentially. Um, the area had been embroiled in conflict as when the Soviet Union was, really since when the Soviet Union was dissolved, split in two in June 1992 amidst armed conflict in the North Ossetia region. The newly created Republic of Ignushetia split from Chechnya and joined the Russian Federation, while Chechnya declared full independence from Moscow in 1993 as the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria. There was a power struggle in Chechnya, and a failed coup d'etat in December of 1993 led the opposition to organize themselves as an alternate government for Chechnya, and they called on Moscow for help. Moscow supported them clandestinely, and eventually unmarked Russian aircraft began operations over Chechnya, and both subsequent attempts to attack Grozny failed, like they tried to invade, didn't really work that great. Um, and some of the clandestine Russian troops were actually captured, which was really awkward. Uh, Yeltsin issued an ultimatum to all warring factions in Chechnya to disarm and surrender. When the government in Grozny refused, Yeltsin ordered the army to restore constitutional order by force, and the army invaded. And the war was pretty disastrous for Russia, uh, despite the fact that they massively outgunned the Chechens. And this is a thing later on too. So the war was unpopular abroad as well as at home. And it was unpopular amongst the soldiers fighting. Guerrilla warfare is always really difficult. This is really common. Uh, Chechnya kind of is Russia's Vietnam in this sense because they went in with the intention of like they're, you know, in theory they should absolutely smash the opposition because they have superior weaponry, people, everything. But the guerrilla warfare was really successful and they the guerrillas knew what they were doing and they were motivated and they really fucking hated the russians and didn't want them there so they were a motivated force and they absolutely demoralized the russian troops and it was as unpopular at home but also abroad it, it dismayed a lot of people in the west who had felt optimistic about boris yeltsin's presidency so time magazine wrote 
Quote, then what was to be made of Boris Yeltsin? Clearly he could no longer be regarded as the democratic hero of Western myth. But had he become an old style communist boss turning his back on the democratic reformers he once championed and throwing in his lot with militarists and ultranationalists? Or was he a befuddled out of touch chief being manipulated knowingly or unwittingly by, well, whom exactly? If there was to be a dictatorial, dictatorial coup, would Yeltsin be its victim or its leader? So essentially people just didn't really know what to make of this in the West. And uh, that was kind of just the sense of Yeltsin really from that point on. And Yeltsin remained, he was reelected in 1996 and stayed in power until 1999 when he uh, announced that Vladimir Putin would be replacing him. And that's where we're at now, pretty much. <laughs> 20 some years later. Yeah, pretty much. I was so, going to go through every single one of the republics, but I, doing this research, I'm just like, oh, fuck it. I don't want to do it. There's, there's so, too many and so much. The same. Yeah. I mean, some definitely had more than others. Ukraine, for example, it held an independence referendum and presidential elections on December 1st, 1990. 92% supported independence with 84% turnout. Leonid Kravchuk became the first president of Ukraine. Ukraine was a founding member of the Commonwealth of Independent States with Russia and Belarus. The country entered a deep recession between 1991 and 1999, during which its GDP dropped 60%. Ukraine held one third of the Soviet nuclear stockpile, approximately 1,700 warheads. This meant Ukraine had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world for a time being. The Ukrainian government agreed to destroy the weapons when they signed the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons and no longer has nuclear weapons. But yeah, that that country once had the third largest stockpile. I think after Chernobyl, Ukraine was like, please, for the love of God, get everything nuclear fucking out of here. Pretty much. Like, pretty much. Fuck, go, get it out. There's a politician in Ukraine that wants to stop the war in Donbass with nuclear weapons. And he's like a prominent politician too. So, oh boy. so there's that. The 2004 presidential election was marred with controversy. Winner Viktor Yanukovych won due to election tampering. Mm, I remember this. By surprise, surprise, Russia. I remember this. As a result, up to a million people protested the results in an event known as the Orange Revolution. This resulted in the Supreme Court annulling the results of the second round and ordering a new election. Yanukovych won the new election. <laughs> Yeah. A second revolution occurred between November 2013 and February 2014. This was the result of Yanukovych deciding not to sign the Ukraine-European Union Association Agreement and instead seek an agreement with Russia. Protests broke out across Ukraine, mostly in Kiev. Eventually, Bekrut riot police special forces opened fire on protesters, resulting in full-blown revolution to follow. In the end, Yanukovych was removed from office by a vote from parliament and then and new elections were called. Not long after, Russian forces entered Crimea and the region voted to unify with Russia. Furthermore, pro-Russian fighters began an uprising in the Donbass region with fighting continuing to the states. We're not going to touch the Crimea thing today. <laughs> no, but I was living, uh, I was living next to Russia when that happened. Oh, yay. In 2014. Yeah, you were in uh, Turku. I was in Finland. Yeah, it was great. Great it was, stuff. Uh, 
I went to Russia. It was pretty cool. Uh, that's when I went. So um, in Moscow, there was this really famous mural. I think I've talked about this actually already. Mm-hmm. But anyway, there's this really famous mural uh, that was uh, supporting Russian annexation of Crimea. And uh, it was on the internet and stuff. It was a really big, big mural in Moscow. And I randomly stumbled upon it. Sweet. <laughs> like, just really random. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was a really weird time, actually. It was really, really surreal. I can imagine. So Kazakhstan was actually the last republic to declare independence on December 16, 1991. For perspective, Russia declared independence on December 12th. This means for four days, the Soviet Union consisted only of Kazakhstan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kazakhstan. They, they didn't want to leave. They had a referendum being like, we don't want to leave. We just didn't really want a Russian leader. Like, that's all. It's like, it's like, that, it's like that Gibraltar gift. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, what? What? Where do we go? Um, first Secretary Nir Sultan Nazbayev continued ruling as first president of Kazakhstan until March 2019. After his retirement, the capital of Astana was renamed Nir Sultan. It's the most recent <laughs> thing like to happen, basically. Human Rights Watch has reported how Kazakhstan maintains heavily heavy restrictions on freedom of speech, religion, and assembly. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's authoritarian. Most of the republics are. Yeah. Or our democracies, they're yeah. not case really in point, democracies. Case in point, <laughs> Belarus continues to run as a dictatorship led by Alexander Lukashenko. It currently holds the lowest rating in Europe of the, of the democracy index and is the only country in Europe to maintain the death penalty. Because hmm. even Russia um, doesn't have the death penalty. So, uh, no, they got rid of it. So in Belarus, their soccer league has actually was the, at one point in the last couple of weeks, has been the only sports league in the world pretty much that's still operating because Lukashenko is essentially saying that COVID-19 doesn't exist in Belarus. And the advice of the government is to keep working hard and drink four to six ounces of vodka a day. And uh, yeah, and all of their, basically all the cases that have been reported of COVID actually aren't COVID. They're being reported, like they're not being reported as COVID. They're being reported as like pneumonia and other stuff. And so, (laughs) yeah, fun place to be right now. Mm. I was going to talk about Turkmenistan, but honestly, I do not want to step on the feet of Behind the Bastards because they do a terrific two-part episode about the batshit crazy. And it's honestly just such a good, they're just such good episodes that it just wouldn't even be worth it to they're, try. Like, yeah, they're great. Literally, This guy puts Kim Jong-il to fucking shame in his cult of personality. It's insane. So I'm not going to step on, the, step on their feet because I think you should just go listen to them. Because it's awesome. They they did a better job than we possibly can at this point. Yeah. We will never, ever, ever touch Turkmenistan. There's a lot of episodes I feel like we shouldn't do just because Behind the Bastards did a fantastic job of covering them. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Kyrgyzstan has suffered through ethnic conflict since its independence, particularly between the Kyrgyz and Uzbek population. First President Askar Akayev's was removed from power in March 2005 following disputed election results and discontent with increasing authoritarianism. Kermanbek Bakyev became president in his stead. However, in April 2010, Bakyev's mismanagement led to an economic and energy crisis. Furthermore, he found 
fell down the same rabbit hole of authoritarianism as his predecessor, leading to another revolution. After eight months of unrest, Bakiev was removed from power, the opposition took control, and a new constitution was drafted and ratified. Kyrgyzstan has now transformed into a parliamentary republic and is doing a lot better in terms of democracy today. Armenia continued to have tensions with both Azerbaijan over Artsakh and with Turkey over the latter's refusal to acknowledge the Armenian genocide. I probably we probably just got banned from Turkey now. Probably. Yeah, but Armenian genocide was a thing. Azerbaijan's blockade of Armenian railways greatly affected Armenia's economy as 85% of its imports were dependent on rail. Armenia maintains close ties with the European Union, Arab League, and CIS. Its gas and oil production has improved its economy substantially. On October 27, 1999, five armed men led by Nairi Hunanyan stormed parliament and killed eight representatives, including Prime Minister Vazgen Sargsyan. With the help of Russian anti-terrorist forces, Armenian authorities negotiated the surrender of the gunmen, all were later sentenced to life in prison, and none of their demands were ever met. In late 28, March 2018, following Prime Minister Serz Sargsyan being voted to serve a third term by Parliament, protests erupted in response. Opposition parties formed the Way Out Alliance in protest and to form a larger opposition to the governing Republican Party. On May 8th, Sargsyan resigned, new elections were called, and the Republican Party did not present any candidates for the next election. No deaths occurred during the revolution, and Armenia has seen liberalization in its current foreign government. So there's a light at the end of the tunnel for some of these places, which is good. Azerbaijan, on the other hand, second president Abulfaz Elchibi was overthrown in a coup and replaced by Haidar Aliyev, the former first secretary of the Communist Party of Azerbaijan. Two other coups attempted to oust him, but they were unsuccessful. After Aliyev's death, the presidency passed to his son, Ilham, who is still president today. The weird thing is that like Armenia and Azerbaijan, they're geographically part of Asia, but politically, mm -hmm. they're part of Europe, which is yeah. weird. But I think that has something to do with the fact that it's really in the Russian sphere of influence. Like, uh, yeah. Like, I think some of that has, I think it's just in large part, like they're especially recognized that way too, is just because like, yeah, they were yeah. part of the Soviet Union. Like, because really, I mean, most of Russia is not in Europe either. Like the capital is, but like the large portion of the country isn't. But if you ever, but if you ever call them, an, if you ever call them a non-European nation, they're like, uh, excuse me. There is that. Last country I'm going to talk about is Uzbekistan. It was ruled by Islam Karimov from 1991 until his death in 2016. His reign saw countless human rights abuses, a suppression of the press, rigged elections, you name it. <laughs> he did it. On May 13, 2005, protests against his regime were brutally suppressed by the National Security Service, resulting in as many as 1,500 deaths, which is the highest claim. He also authorized the use of torture, which the United Nations declared was systematically used by the judicial system. Parade magazine even named him the worst dictator several years in a row. Forced labor is also widely practiced, even forced child labor. This is particularly used in the country's cotton production. I'm getting bad. 
vibes from that. Yeah. Yeah. Following Karamov's death, Shavkat Mirzoyez succeeded him. He declared an intention to abolish the slave system and use of forced child labor, as well as provide amnesty to political prisoners. However, forced labor still occurs, and the free prisoners are under restricted freedom of movement. And the real last country I'm going to talk about really briefly is Moldova, which a country everyone forgets. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not saying that as an insult to you, Moldova, but as a sad fact. It is the poorest country in Europe per capita, along with having the lowest human in de development index in the country, or in the continent, sorry. It's sandwiched between Romania to the south and Ukraine to the north. Mm. So, small country. That, my friends, is how the hammer fell. Well, I guess the last country we should probably talk about in the aftermath is, you know, Russia. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I can, I'll, I'll discuss briefly here. Um, yeah, so basically after Yeltsin, I'm just do this off the top of my head, I don't have any notes. This is my jam. You did um, quite talk quite a bit about Russia, though. Yeah, I mean, there, so. well, yeah, through the 90s, like, since then, just quick rundown, like, I mean, most people are aware of Putin, but, like, his, uh, his path to, like, remaining in power has been really fascinating, because he, he was trusted by Yeltsin, and when Yeltsin, when Yeltsin picked him, uh, almost nobody in Russia really knew who Vladimir Putin was. He was relatively unknown, and, yeah, now no one will ever forget him. Uh, I think notorious little man syndrome sufferer. Dobby. Uh, He's Dobby. <laughs> yes. You know what the best part about that is that he's he's extremely pissed off that people are associating those two images like him with Dobby. That's amazing. Like, the fact that he knows about it and is angry about it, it makes it so much better. Yeah, that's amazing. But anywho. <laughs> Welcome uh, to the insulting world, horrible world leaders round of Anastoria. <laughs> right? Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I have a picture of him on my shirt here and a face mask. And it says, uh, you know, uh, drag your leaders through the streets or show them violence <laughs> and drag them through the streets. So, uh, oh, boy. Yeah. Anywho. So Russia's been, it's been interesting because Putin for a while was seen as kind of like, you know, a hope. Uh, him and W had a good relationship for the most part. W said that he could see into Putin's soul through his eyes, which is definitely not the case because Putin has absolutely terrifyingly soulless eyes and I'm pretty sure it actually lacks a soul. Quite sure that he doesn't. I'm, I'm quite sure that he actually lacks a soul. So What is it that John Oliver says he doesn't sleep? He just sits in a chair staring at a potato until it bakes? Yeah, basically. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's accurate. Um, works out in $2,000 tracksuits. Rides a lot of horses shirtless, does a lot of things shirtless. Since he took power, has essentially been consolidating it to become the Soviet Union again. He's invaded Chechnya again. Under the pretenses of terrorism. The Second Chechen War has been, which there was terrorism. It's a really, the Second yeah, Chechen I mean, War is really cool. I mean, to be fair, Chechnya invaded the neighboring republic. Yeah, Dagestan, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of tough. So this, with the Second Chechen War, yeah, the... And it, insurgents from Chechnya invaded Dagestan, which is an ethnic Russian republic. Russia came to its aid. And then there's also been terrorist attacks in Russia from or by Chechens. Uh, famously, there was an attack in, in Moscow theater in 2004. And then uh, 
the best land school later on where they yeah it's bad so things are still really rocky in that region too the russians largely the military is not really there anymore for the most part but they also kind of because there's a russian guy essentially ramzan kadyrov is a speaking of fucking nut jobs speaking of nut jobs uh Putin and Kadyrov are pals, so Kadyrov gets to stay in power. And so Chechnya has mostly been safe in that sense. But there hasn't been a lot of conflict since, I guess, the last war. But yeah, still. Tensions are very high still. And yeah, the ethnic tensions are very real still. Yeah. In all those areas. Very much. Um, yeah. Not, not a lot. Like, I mean, really... A lot of this is very much, it's like you can very much see the effects of, of this, of the collapse and everything like that in, yeah. in what's happening today. It's very clear. Like, it's very, very clear how things have gone. So, yeah. I'm not going to talk about Georgia because Georgia is just. They're probably one of the more successful of the republics in terms of. Yeah, but they still got a clusterfuck of problems. Like, oh, uh, of course. Um, Including a Russian invasion in 2008. Like, <laughs> yeah, Abkhazia, <laughs> South Ossetia, which are breakaway states anyway. Yeah. It's, Sorry, Georgia. It's just like, it's just so complicated to kind of well, figure yeah. out where you are. I don't know if it's actually the most successful, but um, they've had problems well, with corruption. The, I would say the Baltic states are probably. <laughs> okay, yeah. The Baltic states, definitely the most. Yeah. But of the actual, like, proper, like, r really, like, more Russian republics, because, like, okay. I don't really, the Baltics and stuff, I don't think of those as, they're republics, but they're certainly not uh, ethnically related, whereas yeah. Russians and Georgians, and they're a lot more related than Russians and Estonians. For yeah, um, for sure. Anywho. So with that, uh, this brings season three to a close. Yeah. Three seasons. Holy shit, look at us. Yeah. We're still going. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Hope everyone's staying safe out there. A uh, reminder that we are on Patreon if you love us and want to support us. Um, we also recommend, if you're able to, to make donations to your local food bank. They we we made there. our donation today. Yeah, so thanks to everyone so. who signed up in our Patreon drive in April. We appreciate that. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our next episode will be an interview. Or not really an interview, but a conversation with... Yeah. Ne next other nonsense is... A conversation with uh, Annie Saint, Doctor Doctor Annie Saint John Stark, and then after that, we are uh, pretty much in a launch it'll right be, into season four. It'll be an episode of Joe Rogan for libtards, basically. <laughs> Not really. That's a callback because we got called libtard on Reddit, like, like around the beginning of this podcast. So right, I forgot. I forgot <laughs> we did. That was a good moment. Yeah, I felt I I wear it as a badge of honor. Me too. All right. Uh, but so, do you, on that what's note, your, we should... What's oh, your... Uh... Fun fact. Right. Fun fact. So, uh, it is related to uh, this topic. So, the Beatles are wildly... pot. While they were wildly popular all over the world, that also included the Soviet Union. And so, there's actually a really cool documentary that the CBC did, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, for those of you who don't know, uh, called... I can't remember what it's called now, actually, but it's about how the Be the Beatles brought down this brought down communism, and so um, the Beatles were like so popular in Russia and still are. Um, people would make guitars out of like wood and make pickups out of like steal stuff out of telephone booths to make pickups. 
they would cut their hair like the Beatles. They would um, like translate their songs into Russian. I saw Kate, I saw people make uh, vinyl out of like x-rays. So they, they were called, and they called them bones. So they were like contraband records made out of like x-ray vinyl and they called them bones. And Paul McCartney has like performed in Russia a few times since and like performs in Red Square and like hundreds of thousands of people show up. Like it's a really big deal. So yeah, that was kind of my fun fact. And also on top of that, um, in the 1990s, right after Soviet Union collapsed, the first like foreign concert to take place in Russia was uh, Metallica, Pantera, Black Sabbath, and uh, a bunch of other metal bands and more than 1 million people showed up. And you can actually watch the whole thing on YouTube. Nice. We should probably mention we were going to use Metallica's For Whom the Bell oh, Tolls, yeah, right. but then we realized they're kind You're of... probably going to get sued. So. We're probably going to sue us because it, it's Metallica. And then I thought back in the USSR and I thought I was being brilliant, but then Lindsay's like, he's kind of the same. And I was like, fuck. Also a dick. <laughs> yeah. So you're probably going to get the Soviet national anthem at the end. The piano version. But anyway, sad nah, piano no. version. Go with the, you got to go with the Red Army Choir version. I already used the Red Army Choir version. Damn it. So I'll use the sad one because it's the end. Anyway, <laughs> I planned this out, Lindsay. I mean, it's anyway. still their national anthem. So. Yeah, Unless just the, again, slightly. they changed the words. <laughs> Not um, even that much, though. No. Do you? Uh, you ready? For, pretty you, much the same. You, you ready for this amazing fact? Yeah. The largest McDonald's as of May 2020 is located in Orlando, Florida. It is three stories tall, is 19,000 square feet, and is open 24 hours. Hmm. It also houses a 30-foot-tall Ronald McDonald statue inside. That's terrifying. <laughs> so. And two, not surprised that it's in Florida. <laughs> it's all, this is the most recent, it was recently built too, like last year. It's not year. surprising that it's in Florida. Nor, Florida was, just... nor was before. Beijing. Uh, yeah, actually that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Beijing and then at one point London and then some random McDonald's that's on a highway in Oklahoma. I had a great conversation with a Lithuanian dude at 2 a.m. at the King's Cross McDonald's in London while we were all hammered. <laughs> it was a good time. McDonald's at 2 a.m. is pretty boss. I also took my picture at nine and three quarter, platform nine and three quarters at all that hammered. time. Oh yeah. Oh boy. But it was great because there's no line because it was 2 a.m. So I got my picture. <laughs> and then like three days later, I was waiting for a train and I saw like the line to take your picture at platform nine and three quarters. And I was like, whew, good thing I did that in the middle of the night drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Anyway, with so, that. Season four is I was looking at the list of what we have for season four and I'm just like, we have a lot of really depressing topics that we're gonna yeah, do. We might we might need to reassess that slightly. <laughs> Spread them out. We might need to shuffle some from season five into season four and just kind Probably, of yeah. juggle um, a little. But uh we'll give you a kind of a glimpse of what we're gonna talk about in our other nonsense coming up. Uh that'll be Probably the week after this episode comes out. So, yeah. Stick in right. for that Wednesday. All right. Thanks, guys. This is uh, Jonah. I'm Lindsay. And we're, we're done. We're Later. outie. Bye bye. Later, Gators. <laughs>